Welcome to season three of the Today is a Good Day podcast, a podcast to bring you a new point of support as you navigate your NICU journey. Today is a Good Day is here to be a resource for you. We share personal stories from families who have been there, important advice from medical professionals, opportunities to focus on self-care and more. Please don't forget to hit subscribe, share this episode with anyone who might find it helpful and leave us a review on your favorite podcast listening app. Post-traumatic stress disorder is a diagnosis discussed frequently for families navigating the NICU. A family's personal journey can also cause strain on marriage and a change in family dynamics with siblings at home. We will be speaking about these important topics today with Kelly Wickland and Jenny Lim. Kelly Wickland is a licensed psychotherapist with 20 years of experience and is the owner and clinical director of the Maternal Wellness Center. Kelly is certified by Postpartum Support International as a perinatal mental health specialist. Her experience with both private and community clients has nurtured a passion in the area of reproductive health psychology, a specialty that acknowledges the complexity and trials of the developmental process of parenthood. Jenny is a marriage and family therapist with specialization in sex therapy, holding both a master's degree from Drexel University's Couple and Family Therapy Program and Widener University's Master of Education in Human Sexuality. She is currently a PhD candidate at Widener University to officially become a sex doctor as a clinical sexologist. Prior to the specialization in sex therapy, Jenny had extensive experience working with teens and families in crisis as a lead clinician at an adolescent psychiatric hospital, both inpatient and partial hospitalization programs, as well as a lead therapist in family-based services in Philadelphia. Welcome, Jenny and Kelly. So happy to have you here today on the Today is a Good Day podcast. Really excited about our conversation. So you both work with families experiencing trauma. And when looking at NICU families, post-traumatic stress disorder is frequently mentioned. I remember hearing it for the past 10 years since our family's personal NICU experience. But what does that actually mean to hear post-traumatic stress disorder? And how would someone know if they are experiencing it? And Kelly, I'm going to look to you. Sure. And thanks for having me back, Martha. It's a pleasure to be here again. Um, We do see rates of PTSD ranging from 40 to 50% um, in in families and acute stress disorder around 23%. So it's significant. Um, And what we see in PTSD um, is a, a lot of intrusive thoughts about what happened, the near the near death experience that was likely witnessed um, or the thought of death um, by a family uh, watching their child struggle. And so we start to see a hypervigilance. We start to see some nightmares. We start to hear about an inability to settle and relax, a lot of flashbacks of events that unfolded. Um, The hospital setting can be quite scary and overwhelming. Um, There's a lot of confusion in the room sometimes about what's happening. Um, And so the the memories flood back and PTSD is, is sort of distinctive in that when the memories return, 
the body experiences it as if it's happening again. Mm-hmm. And so we, we've, the heart races, the adrenaline starts pumping. So that's really kind of the hallmark of PTSD um, is it the memories return with a really strong physiological response. Um, and it's distressing for families very in, in every possible way. So, And can I ask you, and, and Jenny, I'm going to ask you this. I mean, I'm just thinking back to being in the NICU and yes to everything that you just said. And I can still feel those emotions. Mm-hmm. Our, our surviving mm-hmm. twin will be 11 in November, and I can still mm-hmm. just go right back to those moments. But also, do you? Do you see families struggling to connect with their babies in the NICU and and having that as a part of this as well, when you mentioned death and the fear of that? I mean, do you see that? Uh, Yes, absolutely, Martha. And thank you for having me as well. Um, I think something that's really prevalent, I think, in a lot of, um, especially like newer parents, is that they're afraid to get too attached um, out of fear of losing their baby, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's it's. It's unimaginable, right? Um, it's definitely not um, something that you're preparing for. That's not something that you know everyone is talking about um, when you're expecting your baby, and um, a lot of unexpected things could happen, right? Uh, so it can definitely impact the way that families uh, need to adjust um, when your ba- when your newborn baby is in the NICU, right? Um, you might have other children that might need care while you're physically in the hospital every day, right? So it impacts as a whole system. So for, you know, for families that don't, might not have access to um, extended family members or trusted um, like caregivers for their children, it could, you know, pose a tremendous amount of stress. Um, I I mean, you're going to definitely see that more so now in times of COVID because people don't have access to, um, to like support family members, caregivers, things like that due to various reasons. So um, with the added stresses of like financial, um, you know, issues as well, I feel like I'm rambling, but there's just like so many things systemically that really contribute to the family's ability to bond with their baby because they're having to consider so many different things. Um, When you love, when you love and you care for someone so much, um, it's almost like you're so, you're so fearful of losing them that you can't enjoy that mm-hmm. moment. And is there is there advice that you give to families? I mean, something simple that they can do to kind of help bridge that gap and to help to start creating a bond. Well, I would I would definitely say let's let's talk about how hard it is. Mm-hmm. Like, let's not ignore that. You know, ignore how I'm feeling today. It's like you know what I'm I'm really f- afraid. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid and I'm worried about all of these things. You know, the doctor just came and explained a whole bunch of things that I I don't really understand. I'm not really sure how we're going to get through this. I'm really worried about these things. Talk to your partner about them. And as as your partner, right, um, allow space for your partner to also share with you what they're experiencing, right? Uh, It doesn't mean that, (laughs) doesn't mean that your partner can, you know, could support you in a way that you're just going to feel better because it's not one of those things that they can do. But just keeping that line of communication like open, it's cliche, but you have to talk to each other. Mm -hmm. And getting those feelings out in the open and kind of talking through them instead of keeping them inside. Absolutely. Great. And Kelly, do you have anything to add to that? Um, Yeah. Parenting is a perilous 
undertaking. Um, you, when you have a child, you make a person who you sense is your heart walking around outside your body, and you you know you could be destroyed by anything that might happen to them. It's incredibly vulnerable, and I think I said this last time. Of it's it's protective to detach a little bit because it's the body's trying to preserve itself. It feels like if I get too attached, I'll be destroyed if anything happens. And and so I really try to normalize for family if there's a, a latent bonding happening, if they're struggling to connect that it's okay, it will come. Mm-hmm. It will come as you feel safe and you feel more confident in the outcomes. Um, I try to make make space for that and, you know, bond as you can, you know, if you can hold their finger, if you can do some kangaroo care with them. Um, but the fear is very, is real, as, right. as, as Jenny said, it's in the room, um, especially when they're not out of the woods yet. There's so much protracted fear in the NICU, you know, today is a good day becomes the mantra yes. because you celebrate when it's good, but there are some really, fr- really, really, really tough moments. Ones, yeah. Yes. And I know we started this conversation talking about post-traumatic stress disorder, but I, I did think that was an important topic to cover as we were talking about it, because I do think that bonding in the NICU can be really difficult. And it's something we talk to families about quite a bit. Yeah. Knowing the NICU experience is so traumatic and as parents kind of navigating through it and figuring out how to take it one day at a time, how do you help parents to not transfer those feelings of anxiety, that fear to their baby as the babies grow older, to the children? I- I'm so excited to hear the answer to this. So. <laughs> Are you asking for a friend? <laughs> I'm asking for a friend, yes. I'm, I'm wondering how we do that. So, Kelly, if you want to start. Yeah, we we certainly do see more anxious parenting come out of a NICU experience, as expected, right? And modern parenting is already um, anxious to begin with. Um, so there's a real importance to increase as much awareness about that as possible um, and understand the impact of the trauma in the NICU and that... that often creates a lot of guilt. There's a lot of sadness. There's some shame that this baby didn't have the optimal experience um, they wanted for it. You know, there could be physical, lasting physical implications that make them a medically fragile child. Um, And so as much as possible needs to be understood about um, the experience and the fears that manifest and how to consciously parent in a way that um, encourages development and growth and risk-taking and mistakes and failures and helping a child um, cultivate a sense of confidence in themselves. And so it really starts with parents really being aware and conscious of their own anxiety and how it permeates into parenting. The problem is it's frequently unconscious. And so anyone coming out of a NICU experience should um, do some work to realize the impact of anxiety and then the manifestation of it in parenting. Um, I think it really warrants 
um, a lot of self-reflection about why, why am I saying no to this thing? Why am I not signing them up for soccer? Um, why aren't I not letting them go to that sleepover? Um, and, and I think it, it just, there's, there needs to be a second question there of why am I saying no? You know, well, it, I'm so glad that you brought up some of the examples. That's what I was just going to ask you. You know, what are those signs that we should be looking at as parents to say, why or what mm-hmm. should I be doing differently mm-hmm. here? So I think mm-hmm. those were some mm-hmm. really good examples. Mm-hmm. And I and I would say that is, that is a fear of, mm-hmm. well, what if they aren't successful at this? Or what if they hurt themselves here and they've worked so hard to get where they are today? Mm-hmm. So I think those are all questions that NICU parents probably ask themselves, especially if they had a really difficult NICU journey. Definitely. And those are older kid examples. Um, but, you know, with a baby, it would be really um, focusing on the milestones when are they going to sit up? When are they going to walk? Um, there's already a lot of focus on that. Parents do a lot of comparing at playgroups of who, which kid can do what. And and with I think with NICU families, we see that even more of like they're holding their breath, waiting for the milestone to hit. And um, and the kids, you know, the, the kids do pick up on maternal and paternal anxiety. It's kind of in the room. They they're looking at mom as they're like trying to take first steps. And if mom is like, (gasps) then they're going to get scared. You know, there's this social referencing that kids do and they learn about their, their world and their safety in the world. And, um, if mom and dad really are terrified and they look terrified and, um, there's an anxious energy in the room. The kid will get the feeling of like, I'm just not safe in the world. Um, I'm afraid to try new things. And that's where we start to see um, hesitation and development and trying new things. So that's where we really work with families to bring some conscious awareness to that. Of like, even if you're faking it, when they're climbing up those monkey bars, give it a smile. <laughs> so proud of you. Yeah. While wow, you're shaking. Right. You're like, your fingers crossed behind your back. Yes. <laughs> but they have to try, they have to try things, you know, and that's different for, there are different physical implications out of the NICU for different kids. Obviously we can't speak about NICU surviving kids as a monolith. They're not, but, um, you know, if we generalize to say like, they've got to cultivate some belief in themselves and their ability and um, as parents, we don't want our anxiety to get in the way of that. I, I want to continue on this conversation, but I wanted to step back just for a minute where you brought up the comparison trap, because I think this is something we talk about frequently. We've talked about it in past episodes. Mm-hmm. Can you give a piece of advice or uh, things that you talk to families about, about how to avoid that comparison trap? And it's something to say to yourself or, you know, what do you tell families that are going through that? Get off Facebook. <laughs> if if it's, if you're scrolling Facebook and you feel worse, don't go on Facebook. You know, it should be relaxing and fun. Um, and, and also that the development of children is really on a spectrum. And so there's this, um, you know, kids come into things they're their own person. They come into their own milestones and their own timing. And yes, sometimes there are delays, but, um, you know, to understand the range of healthy, normal development and when it emerges, it's not like on like clockwork. It just isn't. 
you know? And so it's so unhelpful to compare kids with each other. It just mm -hmm. really, really is. Um, it's really hard to avoid. <laughs> it is really... hard to avoid. But even full-term yeah. babies, they all do Yeah, no. They all reach different oh, yeah. milestones oh, typical, at different times. Yeah, parents of typical children right. do it as well. The, the NICU moms do it with a lot more breath holding, I think, mm -hmm. and dads as well. Um, but it's, I think it's just something to be conscious of, of like, no, it's okay that, you know, little Tommy isn't walking yet because it's still normal to not be walking at this age, you know? Um, and instead of panicking, you know, I think what happens is panic sets in. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's on the spectrum of development. So I think understanding that is completely normal is huge. You know, and Kelly, if I may, you know, just interject is that there's a difference between seeing your kid and, um, you know, every kid is different, right? So being able to differentiate, okay, my kid needs X, Y, and Z that might, that may or may not be different from the other kid. Mm -hmm. I think the thing that I, I think we really want to touch on today is that, so are we taking the special needs of our kid and internalizing it and making it our fault? Are we feeling guilty as if we're not doing enough as parents? It's, are we, like, how are we taking that information in? How are we processing? How are we sitting with, okay, my kid needs X, my kid needs a little more time to do this. Are we taking that information and, and saying, okay, well, I'm not doing enough as a mom. Should I be doing these things? these other things with them? Do I need to be sitting and reading 15 books with them now? You know, it's, it's, and it's this, um, you know, like anxiety spiral that we kind of go into that really does come back to the PTSD of like wanting to remain in control. Right. And it's that when these, un when things are outside of our control, like our children's milestones, right. Mm -hmm. It's how are we taking that information and trying to, um, Get ahead of that in a way that isn't helpful for us and our relationships, um, not only with our children but with our partners. Mm -hmm. And and it's recognizing that, right? Yes. Recognizing that you're doing that yeah. is kind of the first step. Absolutely. No, I think that's a huge point to highlight of using your child and their development as a mirror to your own parenting right. and looking at your child as a as a mirror is like looking at a funhouse mirror. <laughs> it's, <laughs> not accurate it's highly distorted puts a lot of pressure on a child mm -hmm. and so um yes parents i hear that a lot um particularly with women that i think because milestones in the worldview shift of the NICU it's are so world changing and life perspective shifting that there's there has to become some modicum of control and and so what women will do is they'll say, well, it's my fault because that's, that's heavy, but at least I can control it mm -hmm. of, and do more. And then there is this sort of over-functioning in trying to like read, read 15 books a day to your child or you know, practice skills with them um, because they're the, um, the lock, the lack of control is overwhelming. It's it's intolerable sometimes. We personally did that with with early intervention, and I I've mentioned this before, but it, I look back on it. Our our physical therapist, every time she was at our house, reminded Paul and me that Claire's PT was supposed to be fun. 
because we would go, all right, Claire, yeah. come on, keep going, right. move yourself around the yoga mm-hmm. mat. You know, we, we, she, but she would remind us every time this is supposed to be fun. Yeah. So you felt the intensity for yes. you. Yes, we did because we were working so hard to try and help her to learn to crawl and to stand up and pull herself up, all those things that yeah. did not come naturally for her being born so prematurely. Right. But this leads me to my next question, and it goes back to what we were talking about of uh, watching your child on the monkey bars and saying, yay, you know, keep going, <laughs> even though inside you might go, oh, gosh, I, I hope mm-hmm. I hope she doesn't fall. I hope he doesn't fall. What do you tell parents, and Jenny, I'm looking at you for this one, what do you tell parents to help them feel empowered to let go even just a little bit? Hmm. It's, that's a tricky one because <laughs> every parent is so different, right? So um, we're talking, you know, today primarily with like PTSD in the NICU experience, but a lot of us have tra- like trauma in our lives growing up from our parents, you know, everything that kind of like was a part of our lives before we we become parents, right? So um, a lot of that anxiety, there's a lot of layers to that. So I think what I would say to my client would be different depending on what what their like his you know what their background had been right um generally speaking right generally speaking i wouldn't ask them what's the worst that could happen because they're already thinking that right <laughs> they're already imagining that that you know the kids fallen off the monkey bars but um i would ask them like why is this important for your kid to experience Turning it around to that positive. Yeah. Like, why do you think that would be important for your kid to experience this? Yeah, that's a good question to ask yourself mm-hmm. and and has lots of answers to it. I mean, when you think about all those life experience of joining a team, of singing, of going to theater camp, of swimming, you know, all of all of those different activities that are out there. Yeah, that's a good one. Okay, now we're going to talk a little bit we talk about the child who's been in the NICU and families experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder or some kind of anxiety post-NICU, even if it's not categorized as that specific diagnosis. Definitely, I think NICU parents always feel some kind of trauma after they leave the NICU. And so now we talk about a family who has a baby in the NICU and has other children at home The baby comes home from the NICU, which adds a whole different element to the family dynamic. What does that look like for families that you've helped? I mean, with siblings at home, medically fragile children at home, how do you help families through that? Well, I can speak first to the parental experience, and then I'll pass it over to you. Um, Parents with a a healthy child at home um, and a child in the NICU feel completely torn into when they're at the NICU, they feel like they're supposed to be home. When they're home, they feel like they're supposed to be at the NICU. They they uh, they they feel like they're in a lose lose. They cannot be everywhere, and they their personal care suffers tremendously. Um, so we have to really be mindful to check in. Are you eating? Are you sleeping? You have to take care of yourself. We talked about this in the last time of how critical that is to bring it back to basics for parents. Um, and trusting the staff to go home and sleep, you know, when they need to do that. So we really focus on maternal care, but it does get really complicated 
um, within the marriage quickly and within the family dynamic quickly. So I hand this over to Jenny to <laughs> pick up from here. Um, Martha, are you asking in, in reference to how this impacts the the sibling at home specifically or more so of just the family dynamic overall? Well, I think a little bit of both. I mean, looking at how a, a new child coming in who may have different needs than the child at home, how that impacts the, the child, but also how that impacts the whole family dynamic and how everyone has to create a new routine and what could that look like and how do you even start that to get a new routine set up and make sure that everyone's included? Yeah, absolutely. I think this really, um, it really depends on how old the the sibling is um, uh, and depending on what needs that they might they might have, um, age appropriate, right? So if you have a potty training, um, you know, sibling at home, uh, a very common, you know, response would be for them to, they might regress in their potty training and things like that because they already, you know, they, they're wanting a little bit more of attention from their parents. Um, and this is, and this is generally speaking, without a medically fragile child from coming home from a NICU, right? This is just getting a new sibling. Mm -hmm. So um, when we're talking about um, a, a medically fragile child coming in, um, the needs of this child is... 10 times more, right? Um, and the parents are much more anxious than, than I would, you know, I would say just a healthy, you know, typical baby coming, coming into the home. It's already, it's already a change. It's traumatic for, for the sibling. I would, you know, I'm, I'm careful about using the word traumatic, but it really is because it changes the entire, it changes their lives, right? When you get a sibling, um, the brain can't actually tell the difference between good stress and bad stress. So, you know, good stressors could be like getting a new sibling, right? <laughs> they could mm -hmm. be, um, and a bad stress could be like, you know, getting in a car accident, things like that. Your brain actually can't, our, all of our brains can't actually differentiate good stress from bad stress. So now taking that into consideration of new parents, um, a, a child getting a new sibling, right? There's, it's very, it's very complex, the, the experiences that this child might have. But, um, you know, my number one advice for new parents, you know, bringing home another child is you have to spend time and quality time, set aside time for your older child. Um, now, this is even more prevalent, um, I would say, when you have a medically fragile child coming home as well, just because it's it's that much more um, stressful, um, the environment. Everyone is, like everyone's schedules, everyone's lives are revolving around this medically fragile child. So the older sibling is kind of around for the ride, but that's really not fair for that sibling as well, right? So we definitely want to encourage um, parents to be talking to their um their older child about just how they're feeling, how they're processing. Um, this might not feel fair for you that we're spending all of this time in the hospital. And, you know, thank you for being patient and, you know, like waiting for your brother or sister, you know, while we go to these doctor's appointments. Um, thank you for, you know, <laughs> thank you for setting the table. Just things like that. They, you know, a lot of times um, older kids would, uh, it's easy for them to become a little bit parentified and want to help out more, mm -hmm. um, which is really great. But also we want to make sure that the older child isn't 
burdened by that responsibility. So it's it's definitely a delicate balance. I don't know if I've answered that question. You, you did. No, I think hearing about making sure that you're taking that time with the older child at home and and setting aside time. And do you also find that it's important to kind of include that child in the in the planning for the sibling that came home? Maybe there's care at certain hours or different different things that the older child could help with? Yeah, I, I think so. Um Again, it depends how old you're going um, right. to, you know. Absolutely. You know, so if your older child is 15, where I'm going to be having a very different conversation yes. with you yeah. versus if your older child is two or three or four even. Yeah, I would I would chime in here and say there, there's a lot of, there will be a lot of ambivalence about the sibling. Um, it might be welcome and fun some days, but they may be really pissed about Mm -hmm. the loss of their parents to this needy kid and uh, to allow room for the anger of that um, and to expect it, really. Um, And it's not what the parents are going to be feeling because the parents are going to be like just so grateful that they made it home after probably a very long stay. And that's not where the parents are going to be at all. They're just going to be brimming with, relief and gratitude and their child at home may be like really ticked off about it and not think this new miracle is all that awesome. And so I think parents being really mindful of the anger and frustration that is probably there and give that room because when anger doesn't have an outlet or an expression, it will just internalize on a child. Mm -hmm. And we don't want that to happen. So I think just to, to lead of like, you're probably pretty mad about the ways our life has changed. I would be too if I were you, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and that's, it's normal and it's expected. And they need to be able to say, yeah, I think it kind of sucks. You mm-hmm. know, if they're a verbal kid. Right. <laughs> right. A nonverbal kid is just going to throw shit around. Right. <laughs> but a verbal kid um, could say, yeah, I don't, it it does suck and I'm mad and I miss you guys or however they can articulate their feelings. And for a parent to, to hear that and say like, you know, not get, not, not get defensive of like, did you know we almost lost this child? Like, right. did you know it was, they were on the brink of death? That doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter to this child. They're not going to conceptualize that. They're just like, my life has changed and right. likely not for the better, at least for this moment. You know, right. So, um, you know, my own, I brought home a healthy child to my second child. And he's one day looked at us and said, um, when is that baby going home? <laughs> so like, oh, he lives here now. Right, right. <laughs> Not, this is home. Yeah. So this is, you know, a, a typical child with just his brother having so much ambivalence about him, you know. And later in the week, he decided, he goes, um, I think he's a cool guy. <laughs> so there's just so you know so there's there's ambivalence in every human relationship but like we really do need to expect anger from the 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 sibling or siblings at home what I really appreciate that I'm hearing from both of you throughout this conversation is acknowledging your feelings communicating with your partner, with your children, being honest about it. And I also, I think it's so important to that defensive piece as a parent. I'm sure that adds to the trauma too, that the parents feel to just automatically say, 
but your brother or sister was so sick, right, or right. was in the hospital or almost died, and and the other child truly doesn't understand what that means. No. But that's the parents' feelings mm-hmm. and that kind of trauma coming out from them. But I I I do love what I'm what I hear you both saying about just open communication, how you're feeling, kind of getting those feelings out of inside your mind, inside your heart and your body in general, and getting them out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. so important. Yep. Speaking of that, let's talk about partnerships, marriage, and how PTSD and those feelings of trauma can impact that. Jenny? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so <laughs> two-thirds of couples' problems problems are not resolvable. Uh, and you're hearing this straight from a couple, a couple and sex therapist's <laughs> mouth. Please still come see me. Two thirds. Two thirds. Right. Wow. Yes. So one third of those problems that we can can you know resolve are like the toothpaste. If if my partner squeezes from the bottom and I squeeze from the middle, you just get two toothpastes, like solved, resolved, right? You don't, it's not. No, That's what you do. Yes, you just get two toothpastes. It's like a dollar, just get two toothpastes. It's like resolved, right? The other two thirds of the, you know, couple's problems, you know, like are things like COVID, things outside of our control, our finances, our job, our medically fragile child. Um, you know, it could be, you know, grief, right? Losing a grandparent, lose, you know, these are things outside of our control. What really determines whether couples are going to make it really um, is how they navigate through the two thirds of the things that are not resolvable. Because it's not about resolving them. It's about finding connection and still still feeling like you're you're with me. You're here with me. We're in this together. Um, now, a very common PTSD symptom is um, for you to withdraw, right? Withdrawal if once you're triggered, you know, or, um, you know, we're having emotional affairs all the time, right? So maybe I'm going to be more immersed in my work. Maybe I'm working really late. Uh, maybe I'm, you know, it doesn't always have to be, you know, alcoholism or, you know, substance abuse. We're doing things all the time. Like mm-hmm. maybe I'm exercising two, three hours after work and coming home late, you know, maybe I'm doing all of these things. And really all of that has to do with I'm avoiding um, how I'm feeling because I'm afraid of sharing that with you. Um, so the two-thirds of the the issues that we're, we're dealing with, I want to say that your medically fra- fragile child that you just took home from the NICU is definitely one of them. So if you know that your partner is at home, you know, typically it's a lot of the times it's it's mom home with a NICU child, right? Um, if you know that your partner is really, really struggling at home, you can't take away their pain. So you're like, okay, well, I can't really do anything for them. When I feel so disempowered when I'm at home that I'm going to avoid being home. So that's a very, very typical response. Um, I want to say that couple, like the most fragile times for couples, um, you know, number one, <laughs> number one time of uh, like divorce and infidelity actually is a, is within the first year after having um, your first kid, and then after again um, after empty nest. That's when couples are. That's when infidelity is at its highest. And um, divorce rates are at its highest. Um, having children, it's, it's a traumatic, 
you know, mm-hmm. having a healthy child, you know, this child that you've, you've, you've planned for and you're wanted, you know, um, is traumatic in itself. Now the added layers of having a medical fragile child is 10 times that, right? Mm-hmm. So if you and your partner didn't have good commu- communication before, um, if your communication styles are, if I ask you for something and you get defensive with me, that's only going to be 10, 20 times worse when you have this incredibly big event that's happening in your life, you know, that your life, your lives are now revolving around, right? Well, and I think that's my my question for you both, having you here. And we're, again, we're so grateful that you're here sharing your words of wisdom. If a family is... If I'm sitting at home and saying, oh, you know, my husband isn't coming home, he's he's working really late, or I'm really feeling just alone or isolated, you know, what what are those signs that someone should recognize in their own life, in themselves, to say, I should probably reach out somewhere for help? I think Jenny just touched on a, a few that are really salient, um, a, any kind of substance use, abuse. Um, gets really common after, um, avoidance. I think you said that too. Um, the chronic, um, hypervigilance and chronic anxiety, people start running on adrenaline and don't really even realize it. Um, and, you know, bodily pain, stomach issues, headaches, migraines, all of these are sort of harbingers of stress that that the body picks up on. Um, Withdrawing from relationships, um, sometimes going the other way of getting really dependent in relationships and really clingy. Um, And like I mentioned before, the experience of intrusive, unwanted thoughts, flashbacks um, to the traumas, all of those are are red flags and signs of distress in the body and in the mind. Depression and anxiety um, are the common responses to change, disruptions, ruptures, you know, and this is what we're talking about, this rupture of this. But this is not just a rupture um, in you know, a typical developmental time frame of life, it's a postpartum rupture too. So for women, it's much more fragile and um, emotionally vulnerable. Um, the The postpartum period in for a woman's development is, is the most psychologically vulnerable time in her life. So, you know, you add a trauma into that and it's really a perfect storm. Um, and so, yeah, we look for um, the ways they are really different, not functioning the way they used to. Things aren't pleasurable to them that used to be fun. They're not doing some of their normal habits and, you know, not seeing friends. So they kind of need to know, do, am I am I being myself? You know, is this me? Or is this, you know, what's happened to me? And, and I think to reflect on that and have they lost, they very likely have lost quality in their life. I need to fight to get some life back into it um, for their own wellness. You know. um, yeah, I think I think the most f- um, common thing that I hear is that I feel like I'm drowning is um, is something that mm-hmm. really resonates. Um, mm-hmm. Reality is both partners are drowning. Um, I'm biased because I think that. All couples should come to therapy. Um, 
I think a lot of times folks come to therapy when it's too late. So if you're thinking about it, if you're like, hmm, maybe we should go talk to somebody, that is the time. Yes, you should come now. Be proactive about this um, because I can't say that, you know, no rupture is, you know, can't be healed. But if you have too many of them, it can make it very, very difficult to heal. Can I ask you both, someone's listening and says, you know, I feel like this, right? I feel like my partner's avoiding coming home. I don't feel like I enjoy life as much as I used to. I'm overwhelmed. I'm drowning, which I love what you said, Jenny. I mean, that's that's so true. Mm-hmm. Where does someone start to find a therapist to go to? I mean, where do you look? Oh, well, you call the maternal wellness. Well, I know that. I know that. (laughs) In Hepborough. But thinking, you know, we love our friends at the Maternal Wellness Center. But I'm also thinking about our our listeners who might not be in this greater Philadelphia area, who may be trying to figure out, do I look through my insurance? Do I look through a website somewhere? You know, where do you even start? Do I look for family therapists? Do I look for another type of therapist? You know, what where do you guide people to start? That's a great question. So practical and um, so there's a great resource list on Postpartum Support International's website. Um, they have curated a really, really thorough list of, of couples, um, therapists, and individual therapists who specialize in, in these peripartum t- issues. So starting there would be great um, if you're not in Pennsylvania or in the Philadelphia region. Um and can't call maternal wellness center. Yes. And yes, yes, postpartum support international's directory is fen- phenomenal. Right. Yeah, I think that it is really important to. And uh, I know that you know therapy can be a tremendous um, investment for a lot of folks. Right. Um, it is an investment, but you're also going through something that's incredibly challenging in your life. So um, what I, I think ideally, I think individual therapy for sure for each partners to be able to have their own space to process their individual experiences and work through the, the trauma um, and um, gain their individual supports that way. And I, I would recommend a little bit of individual work at least and, and then coming together as a couple, um, you know, for couples work. I think it's very different uh, meeting with someone who specializes in couples and relationships um, because of the, it's just, it's just a very different approach to therapy in general. Um, I would say that it's, I want to say that, you know, I think in the midst of what we're talking about here is that we're also not talking about sex, right? Mm -hmm. So couples have sex, you know, it's, it's an important part of like feeling connected and intimate and intimate with your partner. Um, this is not a situation where you're going to be having lots of sex. Um, and one partner one partner might be, you know, wanting to engage in sex um, and another partner might not be. Um, what I've noticed uh, in a lot of my clients is that it's not because they're so horny and they just want to be having sex. It's like, I want to feel close to you. I want to connect with you. And it's much easier for me to have sex with you than to talk to you about how sad I am. Mm. Mm-hmm. So when you when you come and meet me with like I don't I can't I can't you're you know you're you're disgusting I can't believe you want you're wanting to have sex with me right now like we're going through these terrible things 
it's it's not just a rejection of like I don't want to have sex tonight. It's a rejection of me and my pain and my experience that like I'm struggling to to hold for myself. So individual therapy is really really recommended. I you know um to as like a first line of um healing, I would say. Uh, let's not leave like dads out of it. You know, I think maternal wellness has done a wonderful job really incorporating um, dads and and support for fathers as well. Um, and then you can come see see me at Therapy That's with right. Jenny. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yep. And we're in the same building. Yes, So it's very convenient. <laughs> well, and I, I do think sometimes you can meet with a therapist and really not hit it off, right? I mean, oh, you yeah. just don't Absolutely. work well together. Right. I know personally that's happened for me, but what do you tell people that that they go, okay, they're they're going to go, they found someone. Mm-hmm. They might be hesitant to even start that process, but they found someone and then they left and were super disappointed. I mean, what what do you tell them? Keep looking? I would say give it one more shot. Um, unless it's really clear that it's not a good fit. The fit is everything. Yeah. And feeling like you, this person gets me, uh, is really important, but it takes a couple of sessions for a therapist to like kind of get their hands around what's going on. Um, so give them a few times. I would, I'd give it a couple, but, um, you know, if it's really clear, it's not going to work then. Yeah. Keep looking. Yeah. The the fit is everything. Absolutely. Sometimes it's not about what you're what your therapist says, or it's just the vibe, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. you just, you need the vibe. Yeah. Um, and I, I want to say that this works both ways, you know, like the, yes, you know, I, I'm, I'm a therapist and I want, I want this to work, but like, you might not be a good vibe for me either. Like you might not be the client that I, I think that I would be the most, you know, effective with. So then, you know, as therapists, like we're, we're pretty connected to other therapists and it's not a personal thing. You know, I am not everyone's therapist. I, mm-hmm. you know, um, I think it's important to have quality over quantity, right? So I think it's really important to feel feel out your therapist. And if it's if the vibe isn't there, you just be honest. It's not personal. Just say, you know what? Like, I think I want to explore other, you know, therapists. This isn't really working for me. Um, and could you refer me to some other people? Mm-hmm. Um yeah, a good therapist doesn't take that person. Yeah, yeah. Like, absolutely. We want yes. this to be best for you. Absolutely. And we say that with uh, folks within our center of there's 10 of us. So, you know, no harm, no foul. Absolutely. We'll find someone who feels like a really good fit for you. Um, and yeah, we don't take that personally. Absolutely. <laughs> I would always ask a therapist too how much therapy they've done themselves. I don't think enough people ask that when interviewing a therapist. Mm-hmm. Great question. Um, yeah, it doesn't get asked and it should because a therapist who hasn't done their own therapeutic work, run. <laughs> Do not see that person. Yes. And there's quite a few in the field, unfortunately. Um, it's surprising, mm-hmm. but... Um, yeah, I think that's a really, I love when I get asked that question. It's very rare, but I always say, you are a really savvy consumer. <laughs> yes. All right. Thanks for that advice. Mm-hmm. All right. Any last pieces of advice that you want to give regarding trauma and post-traumatic stress and anything that you want to share with families who might be experiencing this right now? Jenny, we'll start with you. Hmm. Uh, I really wish you had started with Kelly because now I have to think about this a bit. Um, uh, I want to say that I think one thing that we haven't really touched on today and I think would be great is um, the external 
influences of um of everything like grandparents you know like friends you know people giving you unsolicited advice on how you should do x y and z it's really important to have good boundaries i think um with yourself with your partner uh with your kids um what's your stuff is your stuff right we're all back to communication right yeah and (laughs) yes absolutely and we're we're all responsible for our own feelings and emotions Mm -hmm. right I would say I'm always struck by how um, how worldview shaping this experience is. Um, that if someone has lived most of their life without terrible things happening to them, and then they go through this traumatic birth experience and um, having a NICU experience, they don't. It really does change how they feel in the world. It's like no longer do you assume you're okay, you're going to be okay um, or that the world is safe and kind and the road rises to meet you. You don't assume that anymore. And that's a lot to lose. Um, and it has really far-reaching implications for the assumptions and choices you make about living. And so I, th- I think people underestimate how different they feel in the world and um, – and that's a huge loss, and I think that needs to be recognized and grieved and honored of, like, I used to feel safe, and now I wonder the next time life is going to sideswipe me. Yes. Yeah, waiting for the other shoe to drop. Yeah, oh, I, yeah. It's just there. It's there. And and I think grieving um, the optimism, right, the blithe sort of naivete, maybe if someone still had that in their 20s and 30s, it's gone. It's mm-hmm. just, it's not coming back. And it's a lot to lose. Well, I cannot thank you both enough for being here with us today to talk about this important subject. Kelly, as you mentioned, we did talk a lot about self-care, so don't miss Kelly's previous episode in the first season of the Today is a Good Day podcast. Jenny, so happy to have you here with us today. Um, Really grateful for you both. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. This episode of the Today is a Good Day podcast is brought to you with support from Life Celebration by Givnish and KeyBank.